0: Welcome to today's episode of the Dream & Code Podcast. With discussions on software and web development, technology, and IT trends. Here is your host, Dan Delamarski.
1: Hello, this is episode 6 of the Dreaming Code Podcast. And today our guest is Glenn Block from Microsoft, who is the program manager for the WCF team. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Dennis. How are you? Yeah. So, Glenn, could you tell us more about your job, like your uh, position and responsibilities?
0: We could spend the whole call talking about that.
1: Uh, But but I'll tell you briefly.
0: It's interesting because the title of Program Manager means different things uh, to different companies. Mm -hmm. And even sometimes within Microsoft, it tends to be a little bit different. But in our team, the best way I could describe Program Manager, it's, it's very similar to... Um, Prior to working at Microsoft, I've been at Microsoft for five years, you would have kind of a solution architect. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of a hybrid between an architect and a uh, project manager. Um, Program manager is responsible for figuring out what it is that we're going to build and why we need it. And developers, you know, the way I break it up is we have kind of these three broad categories of, uh, well, four of folks that are involved in our engineering effort. Um, Program managers, they figure out, you know, why we need to do something and what we need to do. And then developers, they actually go and do it and figure out how we're going to do it. And then testers ensure that what we're doing actually meets the needs that were identified for the customer. Um, So that's kind of the three. And then we have architects, but our architects tend to be much more high level where they go across many different projects, making sure that there's consistency. So, like an architect in WCF would look at all the different projects within WCF and make sure that there's consistent themes and the way problems are being addressed, et cetera. They're also making sure that as a company, we're filling in the gaps. Whereas within a particular project, um, the program manager tends to be the one who's going to say, "Well, these are the different uh, you know things that we're going to have to address the customer the customer needs." Mm-hmm. That's kind of a quick definition. And and there's Some program managers that are more technical than others, Um, so we like to use it, we have this term we sometimes use called a technical PM, which is kind of what I I am more of, um, which means they're more into the technical details and they actually do write code, they're just not necessarily writing the code that is actually shipping, they're more writing prototype code, this is how it needs to work. And then, you know, the developers come and refine it and, and make it, write the real implementation. And, you know, being the framework, there's a lot of details that um, our devs have to think about, much more than I ever had to think about when I was a dev before I joined Microsoft.
1: So right now,
0: are you still developing parts of WCF? As I just mentioned, so I don't build the actual parts. I prototype those pieces. So I may actually build the first generation in some cases, or it's really a prototype. It's not the thing that will actually ship, but it will prove that we can do it um, and how it's going to work. And then developers will get it and refine it.
1: The WCF tooling uh, we're using now in different .NET applications is developed solely by your team. Well, so within WCF, we have several different
0: teams. I'm on the service model team. So the service model team owns... Um, kind of the authoring experience, I don't mean the tooling side, but what APIs you use and touch when you're basically writing, uh, you know, creating web services, um, that's really where my team owns and, and my, my particular focus now is in WCF is around our experience for services that are exposed over HTTP. But we do have a tooling team within WCF that owns like our test client and our code gen and all, all, that, all that, you know, like our templates and stuff. That's, that's actually owned by a tools team within WCF. And the configuration tool that you see when you go into WCF, all of that's owned by a tools team.
1: Well, basically, you manage the workflow in this team?
0: No, I don't I manage the I'm the program manager for the service model team. I give input to the tools team oh. on what I think they should do. Uh for example, recently one of the areas that I was owning was testability for WCF, like what do we need to do to make WCF more testable from a test driven development perspective as well as acceptance testing. And so um I got to work with the tools team who was building a test client and say like, "Okay, is this the right thing is this really helping people that are doing testing etc but ultimately they don't report to me uh, and that's an interesting aspect of program you know of the disciplines at microsoft like on my team i'm a program manager which means i'm ultimately deciding what we're going to build and when, when we're going to do it etc but the people on the team don't report to me and let, if i'm a PM lead, then the PMs, if there's multiple, may report to me. But the teams are really independent in terms of discipline. So it's we like to use this term at Microsoft called influencing without authority, mm-hmm. which means ultimately the project direction, I drive that. Um, and I need to convince people this is the right way we should go, et cetera. But I can't say, well, and, and not that this is a good thing to do. Well, you have to do it because I'm your manager kind of thing. <laughs> But I actually, having worked with that model and having been a manager in that model prior to Microsoft, I actually prefer the model that we have. I think it removes a lot of controversy.
1: Mm -hmm. For how long are you working with uh, .NET? .NET, I
0: started in the betas. So I think I really started looking at .NET in around 99 or 2000, I think, Um, and then started getting, maybe it was 2000. Uh, I started playing with the betas. And then I started getting more serious using .NET uh, in, in 2002.
1: Do you have any experience with other technologies or programming languages like Java, C++? Absolutely. Um, I started off doing C, C and C++. Um,
0: so you, I noticed you started when you were like eight years old. I'm a little bit older than you. Mm-hmm. But I also started at that age. My my first computer actually was a VIC-20, uh, which, which predates the the 486 by quite a bit of time, but uh, revealing my age, but um, I did yeah I did C C plus plus Pascal Fortran which I absolutely hated in high school I did Fortran um, I did um, Java for a while um, I was playing around with Java and, and Linux and then I worked at a Java Linux shop for a bit of time um, in in around around 2000 and around 2000 2001. And did some Java server pages and things like that. Um, I've also been into, like, Ruby. Um, I haven't done a lot with it, but I've played with it enough to be dangerous. Um, and a little bit of dabbling with F-sharp. Um, but C-sharp tends to be what I write the most in. I've also done plenty of JavaScript. and not mention that. But that's kind of outside of the WCF stuff. It's kind of web stuff. Oh, well, WCF is only very recent for me, right? I I just joined the WCF team about six months ago. Mm -hmm. um, And I've been at Microsoft for about five years. So I was working for about 10 years prior to that doing all types of stuff.
1: That's kind of like a side, you know, like hobby, whatever.
0: No, no, no. I'm saying that those are things I worked with prior to Microsoft. I worked in various companies where that's what I did. I mean, I wrote I worked, you know, when I was telling you I worked with Java, that was actually a company where I worked full-time writing Java code. So, no, it wasn't a hobby. It was it was actually stuff that I did as part of my
1: job before Microsoft. Oh, but are you still working with it now? I mean, like... I play
0: with JavaScript a little bit. I've been interested in jQuery. So, you know, jQuery leads you down a path of doing some JavaScript. But I certainly don't do a lot of it these days. That's for sure.
1: When you applied... When you actually made the switch jobs from, like, whatever company you were working at, to Microsoft. Did you apply for a a program manager position right away or you were like a software engineer first and then became a PM?
0: No, I did not apply as a program manager. As a matter of fact, I jumped positions like three times since I've been at Microsoft. Um, I joined Microsoft working in Microsoft Learning, which is where, Microsoft, where certification lives, developer certification. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was originally a contractor who was doing some work with Microsoft while I was working full time for this other company, uh, which I was actually a lead in. Um, I was doing some help on their new certifications. New now is, you know, five, six years ago. Uh, And then that led to me getting a job working in Microsoft Learning, uh, working in e-learning, helping people create developer training. And from there, I left uh, after about 15 months, and I went to the Patterns and Practices team. And that kind of led me on the road towards PM. There, I was a technical product planner, but it was close enough to a PM. And then from there, I went to the MEF team Mm and where I was a PM and then now I'm in the WCF team as a PM. So I'm kind of on the PM track now
1: for better or worse. Mm -hmm. So since you work as a PM for managing the stability framework, like MEF, but why did you make such a radical job? Well, at least that's what it seems to me like math and uh, WCF, it's like two different areas. I mean, one thing is, you know, I I was listening
0: to Rob Connery recently. He has this great uh, podcast he has now called, like, The Developer Life. And, and he did this blog post where he was talking about how, you know, change, he loves change. He embraces change. He likes to do stuff differently. He likes to break it down, rebuild it, et cetera. I'm kind of the same way. I like to have differentiation. I like to keep learning new things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, you know, while I was on the MEF team, it kind of became almost like a 24-hour, partially by my own creation. I mean, because I was so involved with kind of the community and helping people use it and helping people understand what it was and what it wasn't, that it just became like this thing that absorbed so much of my time. But I loved doing it, but I couldn't do it forever. Mm-hmm. And it kind of burned me out. So at the end of it, I kind of said, oh, I, you know, and and the other thing was that where I am right now, I mean, so services and distributed communication and things like that, distributed architecture. That's been something I've always been interested in. Mm-hmm. I have a good friend, Udi Dahan, who's the software simplest, uh, uh, and he's, you know, really big in kind of the SOA space. He and I talk a lot. Another good friend, Shai Cohen, who worked in WCF. And we'd always talk about services and SOA, etc. And what led to this one is while I was on the MEF team, I was also very involved with the alt.net community. Mm -hmm. which is kind of a community of folks that are in the Microsoft space, but they're looking at alternative ways than just what Microsoft has pushed out of Redmond of how to build software and looking at practices and things that people have been doing in the Java world and the Ruby world and the Python world, etc. And while I was involved in that community pretty heavily while we were building MEF, um, I noticed a lot of interest in this REST thing. Uh, this easier way to build services that didn't require me to use soap. And I hadn't done a lot of work with soap. I'd done enough, enough to know that it was painful. And so that was very intriguing to me. Um, And the other side was I knew that WCF was an area that could use some help, like in terms of a lot of people I talked to were like, it's just way too complicated, this, that, and the other. So I saw it as an opportunity to say like, you know, WCF was serious about, we want to have a good solution for this HTTP slash REST thing, mm-hmm. and we're we're willing to try different things than we've tried before. And I felt that you know the value uh, the value that I could bring to the table was really engaging with community, even outside Microsoft, and understanding what people are actually doing, and then saying, "Hey, help drive that in to build a platform that really meets those needs." as opposed to possibly us going and building what we think is the right thing, but maybe not, you know, really knowing. Um, So that's really what I've been a constant theme of mine from PMP to MEF. So although the technology was very different, the themes of, Hey, let's involve customers in what we're building and helping it to be a successful effort uh, and being really visible and open are things that are really important to me. And, and it was consistent. And plus the space was interesting to me even though it was not an area that I had a huge amount of experience. I mean I had plenty of experience building distributed systems, but I was certainly not what one would call a web services or SOA expert. Um, but anyway, yeah. yeah so that was what so what drove me I think was there were enough things that I was identifying with um, where I felt I could help. And I also felt like, you know, MEF is a very niche technology. Like, it's really powerful. But at the end of the day, it's kind of perceived as like, you know, it's a gem for a few, right? And, and it's much more valuable than that, but that's just the reality of things. And WCF is a much more widespread technology. So for me, it was kind of the idea like, wow, making an impact there will actually have a much more significant impact for the .NET community, mm-hmm. uh, making their lives better, hopefully. Yeah. So so that was another part of the attraction.
1: Well, it actually does make the life easier, honestly, saying. But, like, who came up with the whole idea of MAP? Well, Like, was it you? No. Uh, MEF was really – that's a long,
0: long story, but I'll just give you a brief version. There were a bunch of teams at Microsoft that were trying to solve a similar problem of how to build these more decoupled and extensible type systems. Um, and out of those different efforts, uh, METH was kind of born. Uh, METH actually, ironically, you could say, actually started in the same team that I'm in now. It actually started, its original inception was people like Don Box and, and you know, kind of the Oslo team. Um, and uh, you might find that, you know, ironic, but that, that, that is what actually happened. And then it moved over because as part of this evaluation of, hey, we're all trying to solve the same problem, um, it was decided that what those guys were doing was the best one to standardize on. And so we then had to rewrite that code from scratch. You know, uh, it's interesting. We had to rewrite it from scratch, but we couldn't start from scratch. So mm-hmm. we literally were, in- because we already had partners that were using it. So we were incrementally rewriting every part of it. And we literally rewrote almost the entire thing, which is somewhat painful. But, you know, when you have partners that are already depending on something like Visual Studio, that's what you have to do. Um, so I would say that. It really started over there, like in the connected system, what with former connected systems division, mm-hmm. uh, with people like you know Don Box and others uh, that 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 really came up with this idea. Um, we productized it, and I think we then went probably in a bunch of different directions than than where it was started off on. But the general theme is still the same. Now the person who really drove it once it moved out of those hands was my boss, Christoph Swalina. Uh, who's the author of the Framework Design Guidelines. And he was really the primary driver of MEF. I was probably the primary driver of getting MEF visibility and getting customers to really understand what it was and getting them using it. But vision-wise, Christoph was by far the the most driving of of getting MEF to where it is today.
1: So right now, how many people work on the MEF team?
0: Well, I'm not on the MEF team anymore. A lot of people have changed hands. Christoph no longer is officially on MEF, but he does help. Um, and there's Hamilton Verissimo, who was the author, who's the author of Castle Windsor and Monorail. He is still a PM. He's like the primary PM now on the MEF team. Um, and I think there's about five other people right now that are maintaining it and mm-hmm. taking it forward.
1: There is this uh, division here. There is MAF, there is the Managed Atom Framework, and there is MEF. So, what's the difference between those two? The difference I say
0: is that the types of challenges that MAF was trying to solve and MEF was trying to solve. MAF was really trying to solve versioning and isolation problems. So you know, what their main concern was is I've got an application that uses lots of different components and I don't want any single component that crashes to bring down the system. And if there is a crash, I want to be able to control it and understand like what happened and, you know, this way I can, I can, I can safely shut down the system, capturing all that information, maybe disabling that extension in the future. But the challenge with math was to do that was pretty heavyweight. Anybody who's used math knows that there was a lot of stuff you had to do to reap those benefits. And it pretty much imp, uh, required you to do that everywhere. So even if only a few places you really needed that level of isolation, you were paying for it in a big way. Mm-hmm. Now, there were some customers that were really interested in that, um, particularly large ERP, uh, large um, uh, um, ISVs, enterprise ISVs, where they had different. Because one of the things that math allows you to do through its isolation is have different versions of the same component Mm -hmm. running in the same system. And that's like virtually impossible to do today straight in .NET because it requires you to really have app domain isolation unless you want to do that yourself. So math was supposed to make it transparent that these things could be running in different app domains or even different processes, and it all just works. But the it just works required a pretty heavy investment development-wise. With MEF we wanted something that was very lightweight, that you know anyone could use for decoupling their applications and making them extensible. Mm-hmm. And we deliberately didn't focus on the isolation issue because we knew that it was going to be really expensive for us. We'd end up kind of in the same boat as MAF. And the reason for that is because it all rests on the design of the underlying CLR and the runtime. So it was kind of like MAF was trying to work around a problem that the runtime just doesn't handle well. Um, and Java tends to actually handle some of that with class loaders a little bit better. So they were trying to solve a really hard problem. We were saying we want something really lightweight that anybody can use
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, with a particular focus on these third parties' extending systems. We also, the other thing MEF doesn't do is actual composition. So with MEF we wanted to say that like when a component, or we call it a part, gets created, that part has dependencies. So we wanted to do dependency management. Which is what imports and import many really are in MEF, and MEF really had no interest in that, um, because again, MEF's biggest thing was this isolation and the uh, uh, manage, you know, the the, the manageability uh, aspects and the and the uh, stability aspects of the system. So I think the advantage we got to is that in MEF you don't need any base class, you don't need to co-gen anything, you can just use interfaces or concrete types. Um MEF also has a really nice discovery model mm-hmm. which MEF's model first of all was very tightly fixed like you had to use this fixed hierarchical directory structure to find stuff um and it it didn't didn't have the rich type MEF has a very rich extensibility model even for how it discovers stuff so, I would say that MEF was really focused on extensibility and saying that anybody could build an application that would be very easy for them or third parties to extend. Whereas MAF was less focused on third party extensibility and more focused on how can I build a system where the pieces could individually. Uh, have, you know, if there are any issues, it doesn't bring down the entire system or where they may have lots of dependencies on different versions of things Mm -hmm. and where multiple versions of the same thing need to run. And when I mean multiple versions, I mean completely different assemblies that have completely different interfaces uh, could all actually run... Different versions of the same interface could run
1: Mm -hmm. within the same app. Mm. Well, well, that being said, how exactly... Math simplifies the extensibility model compared to like if someone wants to develop their own extensibility model from scratch uh, with the help of interfaces, like after all, all you have to do is create an assembly, pack it with some interfaces, and then just develop on top of those interfaces. So, first off, that
0: model is very brittle when you just use reflection to just do a look. I mean, we've all done that. I did that before Microsoft. As a matter of fact, one of the things that excited me about MEF is that I would no longer have to do that. Um, you're trying to solve a business problem. The business problem you're trying to solve is I've got these different components that I want to come together. I don't want to focus my attention on building the mechanism that brings those together. So yeah, everybody could write reflection code. So that means you'll have 10,000 different versions. That's one problem. Each of them with varying capabilities, depending on who implemented. But the other problem is that where meth goes in really nicely is it allows the discovery of things to be in a very loose manner. For example, you might write that reflection code that says, find me, I so-and-so, and and then uh, that's an interface. Well, now, those particular components that are getting loaded, they need to get access to things coming from the host who loaded them. So now you have to put that onto the interface Um, or you go down the road of building some type of, um, dependency injection mechanism. But, but let's say you're doing it yourself. So you write something called like I extension. Suddenly over time you realize, well, these, I have a new extension that needs something new. Well, now I have to like break the interface. I have to break that code that does the discovery to say, oh, also discover, you know, I extension two. Mm -hmm. And if it's I extension two, well, pass these parameters to it. So it gets really ugly quickly. Um, Another thing has to do with conservation and a, of resource. In a really large system, you may want to lazy instantiate things. And this is something that Visual Studio does with MEF. Well, building that yourself gets really, really complicated. So it's the, it's the combination of things I think that MEF does for you that makes it really attractive. The fact that it says, hey, if I want to build an app that, you know, Um, let's say i want to build like a rules engine that can discover rules all i do is define my contract and tell MEF find me that contract and it finds it for me i don't have to write the actual have some code somewhere that as new contracts appear in my system i have to modify that code to put those new contracts in the other thing i would say is that because you know we're developing this as part of the framework the amount of stress testing You know, all the testing that we do and everything else to ensure that it meets the scenarios is going to be far more than anybody who is building their own thing actually even has the time or care to do. Now, you could take an argument of, uh, well, I can build something simple for my needs. Um, And that may be true. I mean, if you want to build something that's really simple that just needs to find one interface, um, then doing that reflection load maybe it's easier for you to do, but it is still very brittle. Like what happens when things fail? How do you handle that? And you start to go down this wormhole. I know that because we spent 18 months or two years, you know, building MEF. Now, part of that were the complexities of getting it in the framework, but part of it was really just coming up with a design that really met the needs. Um, And although MEF works for smaller systems, where it really shines is in really large systems, and in those really large systems, if you try to build it yourself, you're going to find the mechanism that you're going to need to build, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot. I know I've done it, so I can, I can speak from experience.
1: I work a little bit with math in the context of Windows applications, but can math be used in ASP.NET and Windows Phone 7 applications? So, MEF can definitely
0: be used in ASP.NET. One of the challenges right now is that to really, on the web, you really want to conserve your resources. Um, So, if you're using MEF to create things that are request level, you really want to have a request level container so that all the resources are reclaimed at the end of the request. MeF allows you to do that you can arrange these things called container hierarchies they're not the most intuitive like it's not it needs you to write a bit of code though to make that work and to make it be seamless with asp.net so it is technically possible it's one of the areas that the MeF team is actually focused on right now for v2 is to make that story easier easier it's arguable that the best case the easy the in terms of what was MeF designed for the 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 scenarios where you'll find it plays well the best out of the box without you having to write a bunch of code is for kind of desktop application scenarios mm-hmm. um, or even server type scenarios where the types of things you're loading are more singletons. Where you're saying like, I have a type of this service or a type of that service that my app uses and um, you know it's a one-time load and I choose the right one. But if I'm dealing with uh, these per request type things, where I'm building up page level things, for example, that's where it works. But it's not as intuitive, and there's a you know there's a bit of work that you need to do for it. But that is a focus area. Windows Phone. The challenge with Windows Phone right now is that MeF depends on things that are not in Windows Phone. Uh, particularly, it de- it depends on uh, link expressions, expression mm-hmm. trees, um, and IQueryable. Mm-hmm. And iQueryable of T is not currently um, in the Windows phone. Now, I did a port of MEF that doesn't use, uses a fake iQueryable of T.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: there's another guy out there, Damon Payne. Uh, you can search for him on the internet. Mm-hmm. Who's done a port of MEF for phone 7. He, I think, didn't use iQueryable of T. He just changed wherever we were using iQueryable to iEnumerable. Um also, one of the things that MEF supports in the desktop is the ability to have these things called metadata views,
1: mm-hmm. which
0: are a way of accessing information about components before they're actually instantiated. Um, and that's another thing that in terms of rolling your own, that, you know, good luck doing that yourself. It's it's, it's not a non-trivial <laughs> amount of work, um, but it's a really rich feature of MEF that a lot of our customers use. Um, So out of the box, what MEF will allow you to do is define what's called this metadata view interface, which is just an arbitrary interface, and we will emit code at runtime that implements that interface. Well, you can't emit code in the phone, so that Mm. code path just doesn't work. We have a workaround for it, which is you can create your own concrete metadata class, and MEF will be happy to work with it. But it just means that if you're trying to just reuse the same code, Uh, That wouldn't work. So I know that the MEF team is talking about, uh, you know, is talking with the phone team about trying to get MEF on the phone. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, And I I believe the Silverlight Analytics framework, which is one of the frameworks that uses MEF, they actually used, I think, my port of of the Windows phone and made some modifications to it. Uh, But there's no official Windows phone version yet. And I, I don't know when there actually will be one. But I think I think there ultimately will be, um, because there's been lots of people that have been requesting, like iQuery, Will of T, and some of those other things. It's just, you know, it's a first generation, and it takes time to get all the features in there.
1: Yeah. What about XNA? I mean, game developers, can they use math in the context of XNA, which is kind of a closed architecture, but still...
0: Yeah, but it is .NET. I'm pretty sure. I don't know if you could use the CLR assembly, if you can reuse CLR assemblies. If you can reuse CLR assemblies, then you probably could just reference MEF. I'm not as familiar with XNA, but I know about it. Um, I am I know that uh, we have this thing we're working on called the portable libraries, which are assemblies that it's a way of saying that I'm building a project that could work on XNA or on Silverlight or on the desktop. It's like a common uh, definition if you will. So, the thing with MEF is, I don't think MEF is part of XNA, but I can imagine you could easily take our code that is in CodePlex, for example, uh-huh. and compile it and use it on XNA. I'm not sure if you could take the MEF binary as is and use it on XNA, but I think that XNA has all the necessary framework pieces that, uh, and for those that don't know, MEF is available under an open source license. On Codeplex, it does ship as part of the framework in four, but it's available for three, five
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, on Codeplex. So I'm I'm not sure what people have tried to do from an XMA perspective, but I'm I'm pretty sure you can use it. So now you're talking about MathContrib, right? No, no. If you go to math.codeplex.com. Oh, oh. So Math is open source. It was released under an open source license. Yes, that was one of the things. One of the things I was very passionate about that I worked on while I was there. Mm, great. It's actually a lot of people don't know this. It's actually part of the Mono project as well, meaning that Mono took our source just like they did with ASP.NET MVC, and they actually compile MEF on their own um, as part
1: of Mono. Nice. So let's suppose there is an application like a complex enterprise. Uh, App yeah, that needs that it was built around the old extensibility model, like interface and all this kind of stuff. So, how complicated would it be to change this existing accessibility model to MEF without breaking the application?
0: It's actually pretty easy because and one of the
1: things we have,
0: which is pretty cool, that we added into MEF, this is one of the features I helped design, so I feel pretty good about it, um, is this thing called inherited export. And inherited export is, so MEF has these attributes by default. Uh, By the way, the other advantage that MEF provides is that the discovery is not limited to types and attributes. We could work, for example, with dynamic languages. I mean, MEF's architecture allows you to define parts in arbitrary ways with the default model being that it's a type. Um, That's more for another discussion. But but, uh, segueing into that, we have this, we understood when we were building MEF that it was going to need to work with existing systems. We didn't want to say you can only use this if you rewrite your system from scratch, because that doesn't make any sense. And we live in a world where there's far less what's called greenfield development and far more brownfield development, meaning existing applications that need to get upgraded. Um, So we have this attribute in MEF called inherited export. And inherited export, you can drop it on an interface the beauty of it is now all implementations of that interface automatically become exporters of that contract that you put the inherited export on. So once you do that, that's the first way that you can totally upgrade your system now where Meph can discover it and work with it. Then all, then what you would need to do is change places where you're newing things up with your own reflection code and change that to just discovery code that uses MEF's composition container and its catalogs to do that work for you. So I've seen people that have done that and there was one guy who took a one guy who took a solution from math actually.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, there was this uh, this kind of workshop at Microsoft that Carl Schifflet, uh, who worked on the on the on the CIDR team for WPF held around around model view view model,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, which is another area that I've been pretty passionate about. And one of the guys that was there wa- had a math based app and he said, Let's see how long it would take me to convert that to MEF. And I think he converted it in a couple of hours, actually. It was like four hours. He was able to rip out a lot of the math stuff, delete, you know, get rid of a lot of the code gen and all that other stuff and all the different view assemblies and everything that math includes. And he just simply replaced it with math. But if you were doing your reflection code, I think it can be actually quite easy.
1: What would be the deciding factor when I should say, I need to use math or I need to use my own implementation? So the one place where
0: I think MEF really shines is in allowing an ecosystem of people to extend your application, complete reusability. Uh, and potentially having components that can even be reused across different applications, because at the end of the day, all MEF cares about are contracts. Mm-hmm. And if you build your application based on contracts, those contracts can work in different hosting environments, including different ap- the implementations of those contracts can even work in different hosting environments, right? Like one could be WPF, the other could be Silverlight. Yeah. Um, uh, or it could be even completely different applications as long as they build off a standardized set of contracts. So I think that MEF, what MEF really brings to the table is a standardized way for extending an app. If you're building an application that you expect for third parties to, to be able to richly extend, um, then I think MEF is, you know, a really good answer to explore because it really targets that idea of, you know, When I like to compare MEF to some of the other things that are out there, I say that MEF was really built on this notion of open systems, where the system itself doesn't know what's going to show up later. It doesn't even necessarily know the types of things that will show up, because you could say, oh, well, I could build a system that knows about iFoo, and I can have all different types of foos later. But with MEF, it's like the host maybe knows about one or two out of potentially 100 contracts that will appear in the future. Mm -hmm. And so MEF becomes a great story for that. And if you look at Visual Studio, not to say, hey, if you're building Visual Studio, use MEF, because I think we definitely built MEF to be simpler than, okay, you have to be building Visual Studio to use it. Mm -hmm. But if you look at Visual Studio, that's a place where there's thousands of extenders. Um, And they may even need to interact with one another, right? Where one extension might have to work with something coming from another extension and where the app never even knew about either of them. So Mm -hmm. MEF provides a great bridge for that to allow those two components to talk to each other in a completely indirect way uh, without the central app having to know about it. The other reason where MEF is nice is in that large type system, traditionally you end up with this centralized configuration file. Mm -hmm. And then it's like if I want to install five things, I have to make changes to that file. If I screw it up, I've screwed up the entire system. With MEF, because there's a zero configuration model, it's more that, you know, the things that are there, those are the things that are discovered. The things that are not there, those are the things that are not. So it removes that kind of hot spot where everybody's trying to hit on and where they might make mistakes. Yeah. Um, it really gets you to the model of I just dropped the binary and it gets picked up. Yeah. So so I think those are the kind of things to think about. Is like, do you really want... Thir- you know, the primary place, it's not the only place you can use MEF, but where I would say really think about it is like if I'm building, like I like to use Winamp as an example, right? If I was building something like Winamp, which I'm dating myself, but Winamp was this really extensible video player and media player, mm-hmm. and you could plug in any piece that you want. I would Today, I would definitely use MEF to do that, because it's just exactly what it's designed for, to say, okay, you want to extend my app, implement this interface, drop this thing in this place... It's gonna work.
1: Mm. So now I know that there is a project called MEF Contrib. It's actually on Codeplex, and I know there's a, a GitHub port of it. Yep. Yep. So basically, what is MEF Contrib? So MEF
0: Contrib is really a set of extensions to MEF. Um, it's funny because I, I was pretty involved in the inception of MEF Contrib because. Um, Early on, when MEF was first getting out there, I was working with a lot of folks in the community, and there were a lot of great ideas that were coming, and I was saying, well, why don't you guys do a contrib model? Because when I was in the patterns and practices team, we had done a couple of contrib projects on different projects we had, and it was a way for customers to not necessarily fork what we had, but to provide built on the existing extensibility points. MVC contrib is the same kind of thing. It's really analogous. So what MEF contrib has is... One thing it has is it takes advantage of some of our extensibility points to build things that we actually wanted to do in the MEF team or may do in the future, Um, but because those extension points are there and the community has the will to build it, um, they can deliver it now. Now, we might replace that in the future with something similar or different, but the point is it provides value to do things that MEF doesn't do today at a place where the community can innovate different ideas built on the extension points that we have. Um, and contribute back. So like one of the premium things that you'll get in MathContrib is um, this convention-based programming model. So if you don't want to use attributes, and I think that for our core scenarios, attributes are actually great because it allows, um, it'll, it, it defines a standard language for how things are discovered. Whereas if I use conventions, that language changes. So the reason you get reusability in MEF is you know that if you're using those attributes, then any system anywhere that understands MEF can find that stuff. Whereas if I come with my own conventions, well, if I drop in a different system where the conventions are different, it might not find that stuff. But what the convention-based model does is it takes advantage of an underlying design of MEF that allows you to basically define a way to express to MEF what a part is, what an export is, what an import is. And it does that without attributes through this convention-based configuration model. Something that a lot of folks that are used to using IOC containers, for example, really wanted as part of MEF. And something that MEF is looking into doing in the future and which we actually planted the seeds to allow that in V1. I mean, the the stuff that um, Andreas did in MEF contrib wouldn't have been possible without us providing those hooks. And initially, Uh, And because the code was out there, Andreas had practically a fork of MEF. So it's a great story because he went and implemented um, something that required him to write a lot of code. And we looked at it and said, oh, we think we can make this kind of thing easier. And then he rebuilt his model on top of the new thing that we did, which got rid of a lot of his custom code that he had to write. So that's one thing that's there. Um, Another thing people have asked for in MEF is support for open generics. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's actually something that I kind of threw in was that was there were you know two areas that I was really passionate about while we were working on mef gaps that I knew were big features in IOC containers that it would have been nice to have meF do, but because of priorities uh, being you know our, our priorities being around extensibility it was it wasn't as easy to justify doing it over things like say metadata uh, was you know hooks for AOP. Um, And hooks for uh, handling open generics. So, if you go into MEF Contrib, you'll find both of those as well. Um, there's also some other work that was done, which is like integration between Unity and MEF. Mm-hmm. If you want to integrate an IOC um, where you could have both, and there are, that's a whole different conversation about why you would do that, but there are people that want to do that. So, these are the kind of things that you see in MEF Contrib. Um, and you know it's owned by the community it's not owned by Microsoft, so they're free to decide whatever direction that goes. I contribute ideas to it, and you know i've, I've but I, you kind of think of me as an advisor, but really that's completely up to them where that goes and it, it's funny because Andreas, who's the guy who's running Mefkintrib now, wasn't actually even the original founder of Mefkintrib. Mm-hmm. Um, but the original founder of MefContrib, uh, Bill, was uh, he was just very busy and didn't really have time to to maintain it. So Andreas had a lot of energy um, and just took it over, and he's been pretty awesome with it. Hmm. And they, they just actually did a big kind of announcement with putting this MefContrib.com website up. So if you go to MefContrib.com, mm-hmm. um, you'll see links to get to GitHub, and there's links to put in requests for different features that people would like to see. And there's also training. So we've got a a bunch of people, Chris Woodruff and Jeremy Lickness Mm -hmm. um, in the community that have really been serious adopters. uh, Jeremy particularly has been a serious adopter of MEF that are actually starting to create free uh, walkthroughs and quick starts and training. um, Because they really see the value of MEF and want to see it get out there. You know, and as I mentioned, it's a niche technology, not because it only applies in niche scenarios, but because the way that people develop today and, you know, they think about something like WCF before they'll think of MEF, for example.
1: Mm -hmm. But uh, so that being said, when developers should use MEF Contrib instead of MEF?
0: It's not an instead of. You have to use both. You can't. It's not a it's not a this or that. You can't just use MEF Contrib depends on MEF. So think of it only as additive or replacing certain pieces of meth. It is not a replacement. So you have to use MEF, and then you can use meth contrib to do things further that MEF doesn't do in the box. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. So basically it's not a fork. Oh.
0: It, is not, it is not a fork. Now, interesting that you mentioned that. There actually are forks of meth that are out there. I mentioned the monofork. Mm-hmm. Um, mono, because of the fact that there were some places where they may find bugs that relate. For example, there was one known one that related to how MEF operated in the Linux file system, because it did some case sensitive. The, the it did some uh, cat some uppercasing of file paths, like on our directory catalog, that broke things. Didn't break things in the Windows file system, because it doesn't care about case sensitivity, but broke things. In the Linux file system. So, in their fork of MEF, they actually have a patch. Uh, that's, I think, the only patch that I know of. Another guy went and ported MEF to the pocket, uh, to the pocket PC. So, there's actually a Codeplex project out there called Pocket MEF. Um, and I, I thought that was all goodness because when we went to the open source license, it was like, well, what about forks? And I was saying, well, like when the pocket PC thing happened. It's like we don't lose anything now. Like we weren't planning to invest in porting meth to the Pocket PC. So that gave the community the chance to go and do it and share what they did
1: with others. So uh, kind of a tangent question. Uh, what was the reason you guys had Math ported to, open, to the open source license? Because I remember there was uh, a post by uh, Miguel, Miguel. Casa. Yeah. yeah. The runs the and he said, like, don't use Math.
0: Yeah, but if you watch his file, if you read that post again, he says that MEF, you know, that MEF is working on the license and that we ended up going to MSPL. And like I said, Miguel is the guy I work with to get MEF in mono. So he obviously changed his tune on that one. Um, What happened was, I mean, when I joined the MEF team, that was one area that I was pretty passionate about was getting MEF under an open source license. The open source question at Microsoft is not an easy one. So it was kind of like, you know, there's a, There's a lot of questions that go on when you suggest, wow, I mean, and MEF was actually, as far as I know, one of the first pieces of the .NET framework, meaning that ships in the box, that we actually also shipped under an open source license. I think Iron, uh, the DLR was a a second one. ASP.NET also, but ASP.NET doesn't ship, you know, as part of the core .NET framework. It's it's, uh, so um there were a lot of questions but why i wanted to do it is i felt i wanted to allow first of all people like on mono to use mef because i thought the value it provided like was you know something that would be valuable to mono developers as well um and i just like pushing on the open source thing anyway like i wish more of our stuff was open source i know i'm not the only person at microsoft that feels that way Mm -hmm. so i probably would have been pushing on it regardless um (laughs) And you know what happened with that whole fiasco was um, it's not an easy thing to get our code to be open source. It's getting easier, but back then it wasn't. And so we wanted to get the code out there, and we went out the door with a more limited license that already had a bad taste in some people's mouths, yeah. uh, Miguel being one of them. And Miguel's argument, which was a valid argument, was like, hey, we're not going to build MEF. We have no intention of building MEF for Mono. Um, and so what this means is that if you're a developer who's building applications that work on mono and net, then mef is poison because your customers won't be able to use you on mono because mef is not available. Now, of course, we could have counter argued and pushed back and said, well, then you should port it, right? Like why? but yeah, but uh, but I think in our case, it was just like, hey, the risk is low in terms of, you know, MEF is not going to be the determiner of whether or not .NET succeeds as a platform or not. And, uh, you know, so um, we can put it under an open source license.
1: Mm. So getting back to Math Contrib, who can contribute to the project?
0: Anybody can contribute. I mean, right now they're looking for contributors. So um, you just need to ping the code junkie Mm-hmm. On, if you're on Twitter, you can go, or, or there's also a website, thecodejunkie.com, mm-hmm. um, and just tell him. And I will say in the past, we've had a lot of people that said they wanted to contribute, and like all open source projects, they, they didn't actually follow up and do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would just ask, like, if you really want to commit, we would love to have, you know, I know Andreas would love to have people that that want to actively contribute to Mef Contrib and take it forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got to be serious. Um, and serious, you know, doesn't mean you have to be working forty hours a week on it, but you've got to really want, to, you know, have be serious about you're going to actually contribute something.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But it's a pretty open policy
1: right now, I would say. Mm. So basically, all you have to do is just kind of like contact the main developer and say, I want to do that. Yes. Mm. That's what
0: I would do. Yep. And you can find him very easily on Twitter. Just tweet him a message. Say, hey, I'd like to be a contributor, and tell them what you got, and go from there. Great.
1: So, wouldn't it be safe to say that MEF Contrib, uh, use on top of MEF, like you mentioned, is as safe, and, like, stable, and reliable as the actual MEF framework? I can't really
0: answer that question. I mean, I, I would say no. Um, I would say that it uses a lot of existing stuff within MEF, in terms of the fact that it's building on top of existing extensibility points. But I can't give any... I will not give any guarantees, either good or bad, about MefContrib. But it's like any open-source project, right? I mean, you... You know, the advantage you have when you go with open-source is if you find problems, you can either fix them and get them in, or you can submit patch... You know, submit ideas or, you know, problems that you're seeing and other people in the community are serious about it will fix it. But I certainly am not going to say... Any kind of guarantee about its, uh, you know about its level of quality or whatever I would, the amount of, the amount of rigorous testing and things we do uh, in, in terms of how we build stuff is significant and I you know I, I, w- I would not compare them. Um, mm. that, that's not to say don't use it. I mean I totally recommend people use Mefkin Trip as long as you use it with the knowledge that you may run into stuff. it may not meet your scalability needs. You have to look at it. But like anything, even when you use technologies from Microsoft, I mean, you're going to evaluate them and see if it meets your
1: needs. Mm. So talking about the development of math as a framework, uh, were you using unit testing for it? We definitely had unit tests. We put all those unit tests on CodePlex. Um,
0: We weren't doing test-driven development in the sense that we weren't writing tests first. Mm -hmm. But we definitely put all of our unit tests out there. And that was one of the things that was pretty much that was a pretty hot argument early on in MEF when I suggested put the tests out there because people were saying, oh, they're going to see, you know, like our tests are written for our internal stuff. We didn't write them for external and there's going to be lots of problems and this, that and the other. And I was like, look, the value of being more visible outweighs the fears. And in reality, I mean, yeah, some of our tests were not necessarily the greatest uh, by in terms of, you know. Uh, testing standards, if you think about folks doing test-driven development, et cetera. But I think having them out there benefited a lot of people because they used those tests as a learning tool. Um, and and those tests that we put out there, we didn't create any tests specific for CodePlex. Those were the actual tests that we
1: used as part of our building of MEF, for better or worse. Mm. What would be your final recommendation or advice for developers planning to use MEF?
0: So, the first thing, you know, going back to what I said before, um, one of the things we really focused on with MEF, and we've heard continual feedback on this, was what's the initial ramp up? How hard is it for somebody to get going with MEF? And we've designed it to be really, really easy. Um, In Silverlight, in particular, it's even easier than it is in the desktop, because we introduced some APIs that even do... uh, With MEF, you always have this initial bootstrapping where you have to kind of configure a a quick bit of... I mentioned that MEF is kind of a zero configuration model, but because it does discovery, there's some slight configuration in terms of saying, here's where to go look for stuff, but you don't have to actually say what those things are. Um, So I would say that there's not a big ramp up to get going on MEF, and there's a lot of features you can turn on and take advantage of, but you don't need those to get out the gate. It's really very simple. Um, to get going. I mean, you pretty much just need to know about exports, imports, um, catalogs, which is how those exports imports are found, and the container, which is how those things are created. And in Silverlight, you don't even need to know about the container or the catalog. You pretty much just think about parts that you're authoring. Uh, there's some really good places you could go. One place to start would be uh, if you go to mef.codeplex.com, we have a whole wiki mm-hmm. with, a pro, with a programmer's guide that walks through kind of the basics and gets into some advanced stuff. If you're using MEF in Silverlight, Mike Talty has some great videos. Some of the APIs have changed a bit, but conceptually wise, those videos are fantastic. He's got a whole video series about using MEF in Silverlight. Um, Like I said, some of the APIs have changed. Uh, I've done a bunch of blog posts on that. There's also a magazine article that I did in MSDN Magazine um, on MEF that you can And there's the MEF Contrib stuff, which is going to have some quick starts and everything. But I would say that, you know, playing with MEF, it's really, it's, you don't have to write a lot of code to just get off the ground and see the benefits um, of, of, of what it can bring you. So, um, and I would also say, don't worry about, taking your entire application, because there is a model one can use with MEF. MEF works really great for composite applications, where the entire application is pretty much just built through MEF. But, and that is great if you really need those benefits, but you don't have to be in that situation to warrant using MEF. You could just simply be like, hey, I've got some app that I'm building, and I want to make it easy for this particular thing to be extended, and so I decide I'm going to use MEF there. And, and you can tactically use MEF at very specific places in your application.
1: Mm-hmm. This was Glenn Block, Program Manager for the WCF team Microsoft. We talked about uh, the Managed Extensibility Framework. Thank you very much, Glenn. It was a great podcast. Hope to talk to you soon again. Okay, Dennis.
0: Thank you very much for having me on your show.
1: Thank you.